podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. It is the Anfield Wrap on Radio City Talk, and it's one of those Anfield Wraps where we're getting you psyched up for the Christmas period that is to come, i.e. here's a load of books that you can buy. It's an international break, and we want you to be thinking about your football and enjoying your football, but we don't have to take a long view on Liverpool Football Club. Instead, we can take the longest view. Uh, I'm going to be talking to Mark Platt, who's edited The Red Journey, that is to come, uh, which covers 1892 to now. Uh, the views don't get much longer than that one. Uh, I'm also going to be speaking to Duncan Alexander. Uh, went down to London to speak to Duncan. It was fantastic about his book Outside the Box, uh, working through Optus stats and statistics. And with one eye on what all of us could do with thinking about least of all me, uh, not least of all me more accurately, uh, we've got two guys coming in who've been participating in man versus fat football, something we covered in July earlier this year. Uh, and we're excited about that as well. Uh, so they're going to be coming to talk to us about all of that. But we're going to start this show earlier today. I spoke to Cy Hughes uh, about his book, On the Brink. And uh, as ever with Cy, we had a lovely conversation. Should we play it? for you here we go Cy Hughes indeed and Neil Atkinson here with Cy Hughes on Radio City Talk talking about his book On the Brink and Cy this has been out now for about for about six six to six to eight weeks is that about accurate yeah um, it, yeah September September and it's the way in which you've chosen you've gone through this book it is such a close look at the northwest and I think that you know what's coming clearer and clearer to me and the reading that I've been doing in general around the game is is the extent to which the North West really is sort of or was the powerhouse of English football. That if it didn't happen if it didn't matter if it didn't happen in the Northwest, it almost didn't matter. And that there's a there's growing concern, isn't there, for a number of clubs in the area and it comes through in the book that that, that is in some way being eroded or lost. And that is despite the sheer passion that there still is in the region. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Um I mean there's 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 a lot of reasons why that's the case. I think um you know, we, we tend to think of football sitting outside of normal society when writing this book and researching it and, and going to speak to people. You just realise just how much really football is, is a product of the society. I know there's a bit of crossover. How much does football influence society and how much does society influence football? But if you look at the, I suppose, urbanisation and the trends, you know, this this groundswell towards London, which has been there for such a long time, you know, in terms of people going to work in London. Um, you know, now, you know, where it comes to investments in football, you're seeing a lot more, you know, kind of investments in, in London clubs. Um, and, you know, there's more interest from, I think, foreign ownership in the big urban areas, certainly, which is then contributing towards the gap widening between, you know, the kind of the traditional powerhouse clubs, if you like. So, you know, the, the Boltons and the... Um, you know, to a lesser extent, I suppose, Preston, because they've had their own local investments, I think. So, yeah, I think um, I think there, there, there is a, a widening gap and it's becoming more difficult for, for football clubs in the northwest, particularly ones that, you know, that, 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 that traditionally were, were thought of as, as, as big clubs. And, you, you know, to some extent, you could put Liverpool and, and Everton into that. Come on to them in a minute. What A lot of what sort of comes through there is the conversation around... Something, and you're right to say that we, we so often talk about football like it just exists over here and everything else exists over there. Whereas we are talking about left behind towns, aren't we? That's mm. the thing. That's the th- that, you know, in the same way that you can you can go through a lot of the left behind places in Scottish football, for instance, and you can see that the that the way in which those areas have been left behind by 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 a, by a bigger society. This is the case in the northwest of England that you are talking about this gap between not just between north and south or uh, the northwest and, and 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 other parts of the country. You're actually talking about the, that those gaps are. A 
stark between, for instance, Wigan and Liverpool mm. as there ever been that the relationship between Wigan and Liverpool is is broken in a way in which it wasn't years ago. And that's sort of the case in football as well now with the way in which academisation's gone, with the way in which people gladly sort of commute to go and watch a football match in a different place, the way in which you can see it on television. We've actually managed to create the same sort of idea that there's places in the country that just feel a bit left behind in football. Mm. Yeah, well, I, th- I mean, I've spoken quite a lot about Bolton, you know, over the last couple of months. And I think what's happened there is probably sums everything up um, and, and and kind of warns of what can go wrong, really, because, you know, you look at Bolton, you know, I think the, the, what the book does is, is, is <clears throat> analyses how certainly geography and industry, how that impacts on the, the town, the success of the town's football club, um, you know, looking back at history and seeing how it rose through geography and ultimately might, you know, decline through geography as well. So you look at a, a town like Bolton, which traditionally was its own town, its own place, had strong links to the, um, you know, the, the cotton mills and, and mining in, in some areas close to the town. And, you know, the, the, that football club became relevant and, and relatively quite wealthy through, I suppose, investments from, from local um, mill owners who, who made it onto the board. And, you know, let's not forget that at that time, you know, the, the, the maximum wage was in, in, you know, in place. So football was a lot more even then in terms of, you know, people didn't move around so much. Um, and then Bolton, you know, in the last 20, 30 years has actually become part of Greater, Greater Manchester itself. So it's kind of on the, it's now not viewed, you know, in terms of the way that the government invests in the town as a separate place. It's actually part of Greater Manchester now. So it's almost just being consumed by Manchester to the point where, you know, its identity is being lost a little bit. So, um, so now, you know, Bolton have, have since obviously, um, you know, tumbled down the leagues and, and I, I think it's going to be difficult to, to see them, you know, rise again, really, without, without significant outside investment. In the book, for instance, you've got a, you've got Barrow training at Rochdale's yeah. uh, Rochdale's training ground because it's far easier to get players to live around Manchester and therefore play, train in Rochdale than it is to actually do it in Barrow. You know, it's at what point did you realise that you were stopping being a football writer and becoming a human geographer? <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I went into the book, when I started the process with the book, I didn't really go in there with an idea of what I was going to find. I'll be honest. I mean, and it was only like kind of halfway through it, I realised, you know, the people what what a lot of people wanted to talk about had similar themes, you know, it was obviously finance all the way through. I mean, I didn't want it to become a book about, I'm not saying football's a bit rubbish. You know, inevitably, you know, when you go and speak to people and you give them a platform to speak about, you know, why football is the way it is, it's never that far away. And as you said, you know, I mean, Barrow's always been a place that kind of fascinated me in terms of how it exists with the rest of society because it's a very unusual place. I used to go up there quite a lot to cover non-league football when I, when I was younger. And, um, you know, for, for a long time, really, that that town has, has never been able to really, you know, promote local players you know there's a period maybe 20 years ago when they had scousers got all going up in a convoy when uh when Stephen Vaughan owned the club and that, that didn't end particularly happily and then you know at this moment in time you know they, they've got a guy who's you know a local guy who, who's made his, his millions in Texas uh through telecommunications and he's recognized the fact that you know to be essentially a full, full-time football club they have to train as you said in, in Rochdale which is you know two two and a half hour drive away from Barrow so 
I mean, Barrow, I suppose, is, is unique in that sense. It's not like, you know, every other football club operates in that way, but it just does reflect that if, if you want to run a football club and you're isolated from the rest, a lot of other urban areas, you have to make a lot of sacrifices well, to keep that club running. That's, I mean, you know, sort of one of the things that would have struck me um, in your shoes, and I think you touch on it, is that, you know, there's no way, I've, I've thought this for years, like... To the point that I've, back when I was younger, I used to almost go with them on computer games for a laugh. But it's almost practically impossible for Carlisle to ever become a force in football mm. because they are so distant from the rest of the country that it really is, you know, it's it's it, and and the nature the the, the nat- it's not like the distant, but they've got a really strong urban area to sort of call upon. That's not the case. It's not a very big place at all, and it's completely off to one side in comparison to the rest of the country. And it's not as though the roads around Carlisle are phenomenal uh, in terms of getting people in. For, it, it might be 30, 40 miles away and and not near another football club you know these things do actually make a difference it's very difficult to be Carlisle United yeah absolutely I mean the the, the book is, is a bit of a travel log through the region you know and, and it starts in Carlisle and finishes at Manchester City which you know is, is the future of football I think the way they're going but with, with, with Carlisle um, I mean it's quite funny the other day was I got to know that the local reporter up there John Coleman who you know his endurance is just remarkable you know the amount of away games that he's got to cover I think is it 24 or is it 22 teams in, in League 2 no 24 teams 24 teams so that's a lot of away games and you know I think the nearest game that he had was Hartlepool and they've obviously been relegated so he was gutted when that happened <laughs> um, and I you know the I was watching the FA Cup draw the other day and they um, they got Gillingham away. And I, I, so I just text John, John, and just said, I'm so sorry, mate. I'm so sorry. <laughs> you know, so another another trip to Gillingham for him. And, you know, it, it's, it's fascinating the hat that they exist. You know, it's, it's I, th- I think that, um, you're right in what you say, I think there's, there's certainly a ceiling to, to where they can go, really. It's, it's a big football town. But just to get football players to sign for them is, um, you know, a massive financial drain on the club. Um, you know, I think, you know, I've spoken to a couple of players who don't play for Carlisle, who've had the opportunity to go and play for Carlisle, you know, and they, they think Carlisle's in Scotland, you know, it's, 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 it's so remote and Carlisle have to actually pay, um, you know, more, have to pay out more yeah, than other course. clubs to, to get, to get players up there and they've got to make a lot of compromises with, with, you know, you know, these are, players with young families you know they, they make compromises with some players who, who only attend certain training sessions and stuff like that so that then makes it still more difficult again to to, to uh, I suppose foster uh, a team spirit and a level of consistency so I think the manager any manager at Carlisle is going to face problems that the other clubs certainly don't face. And you mentioned before Man City, uh, there's Manchester United, Liverpool and Everton dominating the region uh, in mm. so many senses. And you're saying there that Manchester City are the future of football with the with, with, with the phenomenal complex and you're looking to all of that as well. Yeah, well, I, I, yeah, I mean, Manchester City, it's, it's it's not just Manchester City anymore. You know, it's, it's New York City, you know, it's Melbourne City, you know, they've got... Um, you know, they've got feeder clubs or like kind of uh, links with clubs in Japan, you know, pretty much every continent now. Um, you know, it's it's a, it's a global business and, you know, it's quite frightening really when you look at what they've got compared to what others don't have. Um you know that's not to criticise. I mean, Manchester, whether you know some of the some of the business practices that they do may stretch. You know the level of legality. I think in in some some cases, and that is wrong, uh, in my opinion. But I think um, you know when you when you go to Manchester City and you see the training ground and you see what is going on there, it's just quite frightening. You know, having come from somewhere like I mean, in the chapter before going to Manchester City, I went to. 
Fletcher Moss Juniors, who are a football junior football club who, who've um, contributed more than I think 90, more than ninety players to football league um, football league clubs over the last 10, 15 years. And you know Fletcher Moss are just operating out of a you know a you know the type of changing rooms that you see anywhere in Liverpool, yeah, yeah. which you know. What their argument is, is that, you know, we don't want big flashy changing rooms. What we want is just enough money to be able to survive. And I think there's just this kind of, um, it's becoming a lot more difficult for them to do that. So, you know, they're finding that a lot of, they get a lot of their players taken by Manchester City with massive promises and massive, you know, um, kind of... uh, Hopes, really. hopes, yeah, which which are just unrealistic. So that 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 balance between the two is just really stark. I think you know the the kind of the very beginning of football, the way you know kids their the entry point into the game, uh, and then they're almost likely exit points. You know, because there's very small chance that they're gonna you know make first team football at Man City. I think. Okay, so it is on the brink. A journey through English football's northwest by Simon Hughes. It's on to Cooperson uh, Books, and it's available all over the place, isn't it? So it is, yeah, yeah. It's available on Kindle as well. I must emphasise that it's uh, it's four ninety nine on Kindle at the moment. So four ninety nine on yeah, Kindle, yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, obviously, full whack everywhere else. Okay, <laughs> come for the football, stay for the human geography. That's Simon Hughes here on Radio City Talk. We'll be back uh, in a minute or two, shifting ourselves along. Great to speak to Si, as I said earlier on. Don't go anywhere next. Mark Platt talking about the Red Journey, the oral history of Liverpool Football Club. This is the Anfield Wrap on Radio City Talk. Welcome back. Uh, and now I leave today. I spoke to Mark Platt as well about his book, The Red Journey, an oral history of Liverpool Football Club. And here he is. On our book show here, going all over the place, joined now by Mark Platt, who's edited the, the Red Journey, an oral history of Liverpool Football Club. Edited in this one, Mark, I always feel as though when someone puts edited underneath, there's, there's, there's editing and there's editing. There's editing when there's loads of other people who've written loads and loads of stuff. And then there's editing when you're doing a load of work in that, you know, it's not like, as I say, it's not like you've gone away and 20 people have gone and done all the graft on this. You Editing means you've put it together. It's like an enormous jigsaw puzzle inside a book. You've got as much testimony, both previous, obviously you did an interview with Alex Raisbeck about Liverpool that you could, and you've got it in there and you've had to tidy it all up, get it into shape and tell the story of the football club. That is a, that's a massive, massive undertaking. Yeah, it is massive. And I think, as you say there, it's, it, it's like putting a jigsaw puzzle together. It's going out, getting the interviews, sourcing the quotes, the old quotes from the legs of Ray's Beck and Scott and making sure those early years are adequately covered. Uh, but then it's just, yeah, making sure the quotes flow enough to tell the story. And the story is, it, you do go, I mean, obviously... As we get closer and closer to the present day, or more accurately to the mid sixties, you know, you do end up with more. You're able to do more fresh interviews yeah, yeah. yourself, you know. But you, you do go all the way through. You are doing eighteen ninety two right the way through, aren't you? Yeah, I think it's it's just important to give to give a sense of the, the voice of the players from that time and to sort of put put across what it was like for those players. You know, they were these are the people there and at the heat of the moment and in all the major moments, the highs, the lows throughout the history. And I think, the, 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 especially from the, the figures before the war, you know, hasn't been covered as in depth as much. And yeah, that's not as covered as in depth in the book as, as you say, they're the later years. But the years are not to those times. No, I, I, it's, in all honesty, it's the most I've ever seen written down of things that came out of Alex Raisbeck's mouth. I mean, that yeah. it's a really interesting thing that that yeah. you know when you look at there's Raisbeck in there, players that we 
we can't even almost semi-conceive of now, but the sort of footballer that he was, the sort of player he was, where he was dominating through the middle of the pitch. You've got Ray's Beck, you've got uh, Ephraim Longworth in there as well, who had a terrific career, Elisha Scott. <laughs> but these, these, these should be seen as serious names because we talk about 18 league titles yeah. and all that sort of stuff. Well, these were the lads who were actually putting them in the cabinet. Yeah, that's right. They, no, they, they put the club, they helped put the club where we are today in those those formative years. Um, you know, and, and I say, you, we don't hear much from them. We're ne- never really quoted in the press. You know, so it was a bit of a task to find quotes from them. But, you know, we've managed to take up quite a few. It's then sort of shifting into the the the, the, net, the, the post-war era. You worked on, uh, on the on, on the book, sort of detail on 46-47 yeah. with Gary Shaw. Mm-hmm. That was you and Gary who did that. And even there, you know, you, obviously you've got those. You've done that once, if you know what I mean. Yeah. But then to sort of put that in the context again of mm-hmm. the whole football club, that again is a separate challenge. It's not just telling that story, but it's trying to tell it through their mouths rather than through you, yeah. you and Gary and analysing it. Yeah, yeah, and you know that, that's I mean, that, that's a challenge at times to, to to sort of put their views across in in a way that's readable within the book. Um, you know, and calling on some interviews that we did for the book with Gary. Back then, but you know, 46, 47, major moment in Liverpool's history. Um, I say we've covered it before, but a different slant on it this this time because it is like coming from the mouths of those players who were involved in that title triumph. Is there is there a bit of a on this? There's some people you're speaking to, and you know, let's almost be quite blunt about it that this could be for, for, for a fair few Liverpool players almost like one of the last times they'll do they'll put a lot of what's being said or what they say into print and that's it's a bit of a responsibility really isn't it to sort of hark back to that time mm-hmm. it is a you, I'm not quite saying that the, the either these are their or Liverpool football club's final words on that period but more that the, there's something which is quite you know, we are sort of on the on the on the precipice of, of losing a lot of these former players, it's a lot totally, of these yeah. former great former greats. You know, mm-hmm. and and that is something which, when you're talking to them, are you sort of aware of? You want to get as much as you can. You want to yeah, try and get yeah. the essence of them, but also yeah. get the paint the picture of who they are as well. Yeah, and you record as I say, you're recording these memories for prosperity, are you? for the for future generations. You know, I was saying the book at the start. You know, hopefully this will be this will form a definitive account. And sort of a good sort of work of reference for you know future Liverpoolians to look back on and you know and and look back on what these players were thinking at the time of these moments. Was the times when you almost you're killing yourself not to put your voice in? You know what I mean when you were piecing it together because because you've you've taken it as as as, as you are just it is entirely their quotes. It's entirely things that players yeah. have said. Mm-hmm. But was there times where you must have almost wanted to go set a little bit of a scene, or you just trusting that the reader's going to be able to set his own scene? Well, did it yet? Yeah, and there's times when when you've got to fill gaps. You, you're trying to plug gaps in within the quotes, and that's when you sort of struggle when you you know you've got quotes sort of detailing a particular moment or a match, and you're just missing one or two to link certain incidents in the game you're thinking if you could just put your own voice in that would do that but you know a bit more digging a bit more interviews we sort of plugged the gaps and that, that was probably one of the most difficult challenges but it was quite refreshing to be honest as well by not, not having to put your own voice in it is there something in when you say getting teammates voices you know uh, the, the, there's a line in about the 85-86 cup final where where Whelan sort of knows where he is on the pitch because, and I like this, he could hear Kenny moaning to his left, yeah. moaning. The idea that the, the, t- the players are also talking about the voices of the people that, that, that are around yeah. them as well. That's something that I think yeah. comes through in, in, in some of the chapters. Yeah, I mean, some of it's like it's like being in a conversation with those players. You can sort of envision these players sitting around the table, you know, like we are now, and, and them sort of talking through, the, through those particular games. Which one, what stood out for you in, in, in the whole thing? What was the one where you thought, oh, I'm, I'm glad I've got that or I'm glad I've found that or I'm glad that I can put that in that context? Um, I think at, 
one thing I enjoyed doing was the, was the 90s because I grew up in the 80s, obviously on the glow as a kid on the glory and everything else. And you think like you get get adult, or it's going to be the same. It's going to be glow trophy after trophy. Obviously the 90s didn't turn out that way. But pe- and people look back on the 90s as a, this dismal decade. But when you when you reflect it, really, it wasn't there's so many memorable moments and mm. moments that I think we haven't really discussed as in depth. Yeah, you know, in future years maybe. But you know, even like the, the lows as well, the cream suits, the going back a bit, you know, the, the defeat to Wimbledon that was the eighties in the cup final. So we covered the defeats as well. I think it yeah, we all we all know the stories regarding the victories, but I think the ones in the defeat, the Arsenal game in eighty nine, another particular one. And the, the, also in there, you know, the, that is quite a tumultuous sort of bit of storytelling you've got there. You're starting in, you know, you've got the story of Kenny Quitten, yep. you know, that segues into mm. uh, into Sooness, which segues into Evans. And mm-hmm. it's interesting that you say, you know, we, we, we don't talk about that period very much because firstly, we saw some great performances. Yep. Secondly, considering the fact that we haven't won the title for 27 years, there's been, in comparison to virtually every other club in the country, mm-hmm. an unbelievable amount of success, either finals or silverware in there. And we we miss those stories at times because we focus on we won it five times in Istanbul yeah. rather than focusing on yeah. what went wrong the second time in Athens. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. There's as many when you look back on the last twenty seven years, as you say, there's probably as many low moments as high moments, but they're still pretty memorable as well. You know, as a fan growing up and living through them them times, you know, the moments that mean a lot to us. Yeah, I think it's I, I, as I say, I think the whole thing it's it is you know covering such a such a wide uh, such a wide sort of thread and and a lot of it you know it's you're mentioning there you know when you were growing up and all that sort of stuff you went to your first game in the late seventies mm-hmm. you're still working actively constantly on Liverpool based stuff every yeah. single day I mean that is that's a it's it's virgin on a are you, are you fifty years into a love affair here now well I'm not quite fifty yet but getting there <laughs> getting there yeah <laughs> it's it's fantastic it's called the Red Journey uh, it's on to Cooperton I'm sorry that two of the books have been on to Cooperton but we'll all be all right uh, because they do very good football books. Uh, make a stream the story of Liverpool season 13-14 it is called The Red Journey it's an oral history of Liverpool Football Club it's out right now it is well worth getting it's well worth getting in hardback edition in that it's it's a tomb to be honest with you I'm going to be quoting all sorts of stuff from this over the next weeks and months so prep for that uh, because there's lovely little sentences that people have put into their own words telling the stories from their own mouths who achieved what, where, when and how everything in there right the way through the duration of 1892 through to the present day. Thanks very much to Mark. This is the Anfield Wrap on Radio City Talk and we will be back in a second. Always good to speak to Mark after the break, after seven o'clock. I am going to be talking to you. Uh, I'm going to be talking to Duncan Alexander about his book, Outside the Box, which deals with Opta's huge collection of stats, facts and figures around the game. It's a terrific book uh, and it's an excellent conversation. Don't go anywhere. Welcome back to the Anfield Wrap on Radio City Talk. I'm Neil Atkinson. I'm going to be speaking to Duncan Alexander in a minute about his book, Outside the Box. But before then, I want to give a shout out to a couple of things. The first thing is that there is an appeal uh, to help Merseyside's children. It's estimated that 9,000 children across Merseyside don't have their own bed to sleep in, uh, forced to share with siblings or left sleeping on the couch. It means nowhere comfortable to sleep, nowhere to hang a Christmas stocking. You can make a real difference to this if you go to the Twitter account uh, and all the information is there at endfurniturepov, P-O-V, at end furniture pov uh, pov short for poverty uh, you can see on there how you can help and that they've got themselves a donate page via bt.com so that's on there at the minute end furniture pov pov uh, to do that uh, also uh, wanted to take the opportunity to mention our friend uh, Kyle Percy who's put on 
pulling an event together around um, Captain Beefheart in 1972. American musician Captain Beefheart had his first ever uh, exhibition of paintings, The Blue Coat, and 45 years later, uh, Liverpool's Centre for the Contemporary Art is the focus for a weekend that will consider him a 21st, a 20th century visionary, working, not 21st century, working across music, visual, art, writing, and performance. So on the 10th of November, the Magic Band are at the Liverpool Philharmonic. On the 11th, that's all this weekend, uh, there's poetry, film, and music events all night and all afternoon at the Blue Coat. Uh, live performances from the Pale Rider, from Pale Rider, uh, the Cubicle, Psycho Comedy, Strange Collective, Dave McCabe, and Edgar Jones. And on the 12th, there's a full day of ex- exhibitions and events at the Blue Coat too. Hope it goes really, really well. Uh, for more information and tickets, go to www.thebluecoat.org.uk. Um, this is the Anfield Wrap. The other stuff to mention at the minute is what we're doing. Liverpool are about to embark on about the biggest run of games I can remember. The most intense run of games that I can remember. Uh, leading from the 19th of Sept- 18th of September, so, uh, November, sorry, right the way through until the 1st of January. Uh, and Liverpool are playing against Southampton then, and it ends against Burnley, and it's so many games, it's ridiculous. And we do loads of work at the Anfield Wrap, both sort of going over games and, and, and previewing them as well. And if you've been looking for a reason to subscribe to the Anfield Wrap for £5 a month, theanfieldwrap.com forward slash subscribe, then this is a re- as, as good a time as any. It's never going to get more intense. I've been planning shows throughout much of this week and trying to work out what we're going to do, when and how. It's pretty exciting stuff. So the Southampton, Sevilla and Chelsea to come uh, in the week that follows this one. And it's pretty exciting stuff. So if you do want to subscribe, now would be a great time to do so. Theanfieldwrap.com forward slash subscribe. In amongst all of that, some of the things that we do is more extended interviews around the books we we, we, we chat about. And we, we've done one of them this week with uh, Duncan Alexander. I went down to London to speak to him. Talked to him at length about Outside the Box, uh, his book, but also we had a shorter version for this show. Uh, so here's me and Duncan talking about Outside the Box, his excellent book around football's facts and figures. Another City Talk chat in a room. Uh, this one's a smaller room, uh, but it's all working very well. I've got Duncan Alexander with me, the author of Outside the Box. Uh, and very much a work around the the Opta work, the Opta Joe work on Twitter, but Opta in general, 25 years of this. And let's talk about that to start with, Duncan. And one of the things that strikes me is the the retrospective gathering of this data since 1992 by Opta, because every game was televised, there has been this desire to capture every last piece of data since 1992. Mm. Yeah, well, we went back. Um, Opta began in 1996, so we went back... Um, to fill in those gaps for assists. Assists was the main kind of missing thing. I mean, obviously, past completion rates would be good from the from 92 and 93 or whatever, but really there's not much application for them, whereas, you know, all-time assists is, you know, has interest. Is there something on that in the way, around the way to the data that there's... To draw, and you've tried to do this in the book as well, to draw these themes out across this spell of 25 years, is there something where... You begin to you, you you do begin to notice trends, patterns. They do emerge sort of quite early on as you're going right the way through this, almost you know, thoroughly. Yeah, I mean, we've had a lot of criticism over the years, I guess, for sort of you know, part of the football didn't begin in 1992 brigade. But what did begin in 1992 um, and then increase as time went on is is the level of data gathering, and obviously, you can do a lot more with the more data you've got. Um, and I think you can definitely see. If you look at 92-93, it's essentially, it's the first Premier League season, but it's essentially just the epilogue of the first division. There's not really that much difference. You get to 93-94 and that's when it starts to feel like a different thing. You have squad numbers come in. Um, Manchester United win the league by quite a long way compared to a real struggle against, you know, the mighty Norwich the year before. Um, so it, it feels, and then obviously as the years go by, you see the influx of money in the terms of Blackburn in 94-95. Um, a couple of years after that, you see Wenger, who is su- surprisingly 
really the, the only the third foreign manager to be appointed in the Premier League. Um, and there's been over 60 now, so but he's still hanging on. But, you know, you see a kind of professionalism um, coming in the 90s, and then obviously there's different trends as well in the 2000s and 2010s. Is that within the book what you do is you sort of go through you, you take it in three you do a, a great introduction which we'll come on to talk about but you do it in three season chunks and then you come out and you you, want, you look to pull a theme um, in terms of trying to sort of grab the away from the idea of you're just in the sort of this this this, this chronological loop of da, 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 da. was that something which you decided what those themes were going to be before you wrote the book or as you were writing the book did you think actually this is something I think I should be talking about a bit of both, really. I mean, obviously, certain seasons jump out in terms of you kind of know what people are going to be talking about. So, ninety-eight, ninety-nine is obviously you know the treble for United, but they could have easily won none of those three trophies. And there's there's other seasons that, that really jump out. Obviously, oh three, oh four, the Arsenal going unbeaten, things like that. But then other other seasons, not that much happens, and you kind of you you delve through the data. I mean, one of the things people always talk about in the context of the Premier League is you know they worry that it's becoming too polarised that the big clubs are becoming more and more successful and the smaller clubs are finding it harder yet statistically the closest season in Premier League history is 96-97 and yet I'd argue it's probably the most you know forgettable season we've had you know United won it but not in particularly good style the, the three teams that went down all nearly bounced back the following season it, it, but you know there weren't that many stories really from that, that season One of the things that sticks out is I'm going right the way through the, the whole book is is o three to o nine, and that's in terms of what you've just said there. For instance, about predictability for one, the the idea of the big four absolutely sets itself in stone. And when we do history shows, one of the things that I always notice talking about a Liverpool season at the minute we're working through o five o six, and the extent to which like Liverpool are going to finish in the top four by January, they're just going it. It's done. Mm. Uh, it's all locked. Uh, even seasons where you feel as though you know Liverpool got have terrible starts, and then you look at the table and you realise that yes, first's gone, second's probably gone, but they're only three points off third. What's everybody else been doing? Mm. Do you know what I mean? Liverpool haven't scored a goal yeah. from home yet. My, my point on this though is that there's loads and loads of really interesting little statistical things in that period through those constants really. So, for instance, every title winner concedes fewer than thirty, and that's only happened once since. And you know, going right the way through that, are you sort of conscious when you're grabbing this data and working through it that? these things do just sort of scream this demand yeah. attention. Yeah, I mean, you, you kind of see different trends at the start. So you had Wenger coming in at Arsenal, you had United winning the Champions League but not being able to defend it, Ferguson basically realising you couldn't play all-out attack 4-4-2 in Europe and, and, and changing that. You had Julio at Liverpool who again realised the defence but was in dire straits and needs to be sorted out. And then obviously in the mid-2000s you get um, Mourinho arriving and Benitez arriving at Liverpool and basically... For sort of four or five years, English teams could defend better than any other club in Europe, and we kind of saw the results. Really, you know, there was a team every, in the Champions League final, at least one English team every year um, for about eight years, other than one season, and it really was a kind of, you know, pragmatism kind of ruled out. Really, and I don't think anyone really looks back on those seasons with that much fondness. It was like you say, the Big Four was so set in stone. The weirdest thing about the Big Four is that every one of those Big Four had their turn at winning the league other than Liverpool, which is, again, statistically unlikely. You know, surely Liverpool could and should have won the league in one of those seasons. But as it went on, it almost lessened the impact, I guess, because, the, you know, finishing in the top four became this kind of, and it still is, this kind of holy search, really. You know, a team would rather finish fourth than win the FA Cup because of the Champions League. One of the things that sort of strikes me now, looking back at that period, I mentioned 05, is the, the extent to which... We've lost, maybe lost the thread of how good a lot of these sides were. So Chelsea win 
of the first 22 games, they win 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm obsessed with this fact. They win 20 of the first 22 yeah, games. Yeah, I think they were 16 points clear at that point, which is just insane. Yeah, it, well, it is. And, 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 and now, people forget as well that at that point, everyone was terrified that Chelsea were going to turn into Celtic or someone and basically win. The, but they were so powerful. And at the end of that season, and this shows how you look back at stuff and you forget how people fail the time. Chelsea ended that season so much better than everyone else. And then they went and signed Andrei Shevchenko and everyone was like, well, just, just give up, yeah. And we, obviously, we know now that Shevchenko didn't work out. It was the first of many strikers they spent a lot of money on that didn't work. But at the time, everyone feared that. And it, and it led to a very strange scenario where in 06 and 07, the first time United almost became the kind of like romantic option. Everyone, a lot of neutrals were backing Manchester United as kind of, you know, chipping away at the Mourinho Chelsea empire, really, which was quite odd thinking about. No, it's odd, but it was, it was I think that, that was genuinely happening. It was there massively. And, you know, you mentioned there Liverpool not winning the league in that period. Liverpool in 08 09 ended up with a ton of unwanted stats in terms of you've got them all in the book in terms of all the things that Liverpool managed to do which normally sides that go on and win the league do mm. and they find themselves sort of coming up against probably the the, 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 the last great Ferguson side uh, pulling it together and pull, getting themselves to 90 points but it is interesting the number of those stats that that side ends up with whether or not they were lucky or unlucky I'd say the 13-14 side were probably more unlucky in the end but that side just sort of finds itself with this ton of unwanted stats yeah, I mean, they remain the only team to ever lose only twice all season and not win the league. Um, you know, and their points data would have won the league in, it's in the book, but many, many times, including many of Liverpool's own league titles, they, they outperformed that season. I mean, it, as you say, it was, it was probably Ferguson's last great team. I think it wasn't his last great managerial performance, obviously, because he then repeated it a couple of times with, with lesser teams. But, you know, that 08 09 team possibly doesn't have the, the retrospective credit that thirteen fourteen does, but purely from the kind of raw entertainment of that season. But they were arguably, in terms of combining attack and defence, it was almost certainly Liverpool's best team in the Premier League era. There's, you, you've written a whole chapter on Liverpool not winning the league, which is quite an interesting way to approach it, sort of going year by year, um, lashing in perfectly acceptable jokes around Julian Dix and so <laughs> on and so forth. But there's, um, you know, there's a couple of little trends in there as well. I think the main one which is, from a Liverpool supporter's point of view, fascinating, is the inability to sustain the push. Mm. And that's one which sticks out to me is that, the, you know, there's, it's that the club is, you know, going back to Roy Evans, you, you rightly cite Roy Evans, Roy Evans comes fourth in a two-horse race, can't sustain the push. That there's a Julio season where they're terrific, but Arsenal win the last 13 games, and trust me, this feels ridiculously un- unlucky as well. Uh, they can't sustain that push. Then there's even, you know, there's the 08 09 side for, for Benitez, but he can't sustain that the following season, and there's lots of off-the-field reasons why, but, and then Rodgers, and then what happens to Rodgers, that there does appear to be something that this, that, that, that's happened to Liverpool more than any other side where they do manage to build the side capable of it mm. but partially through bad fortune and then par- partially through external factors but also maybe something internal they can't quite sustain Yeah, it was quite strange actually going through each season from, from 1991 onwards and, and seeing that, you know, it it's not like Liverpool haven't come close to winning the league they probably have come oh, they've clearly come closer than any team you who hasn't won the league has and to doing it but every time they do it all the press is like this Liverpool back next year they're going to build on this and they, they never have and it and like you say there are different reasons for, for different seasons but it is it has happened many times and you know they're, they're such a big team they're such a big club still and they still have this huge kind of draw but they've not won the league for 27 years I've got a theory on this and I think it's interesting because it's something else that you pick up on in the book as well that no side well that's not 
picked up on the book, it's just simply a statement of fact, but no sides defended the title this decade. Mm. And I think that now that this league, because there isn't a dominant force, as for instance Manchester United and Arsenal were trading it between them for a period, just Man United, uh, the Chelsea side that we cited before, that it's one thing to dominate, but it's another thing to have to chip away and win it and then almost suck up that process again, if you know what I mean. I, I, I wonder whether or not, and so Liverpool every single time, not only have they had the emotional roller coaster during that season, but they don't, don't then get the collective lift of, well, at least we got to win the thing. Instead, it's just it's a hangover. But I think I wonder if you think the same thing. That and again, if it can be demonstrated because of how bad it, it's been recently, that sides are now almost hung over by winning the title, and it's so difficult to rouse themselves. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're currently on course with, to be the first decade since the sixties when a team has retained the title, which is you know pretty unusual. Obviously, seventies and eighties, you had many instances of Liverpool doing it. Nineties, two thousands, you know, uh, United and, and Chelsea. But it, yeah, it's harder, and it obviously you'll get examples like Leicester where no one expected them to do it. But then you have, I think it's, it goes hand in hand with player power a little bit as well. So you know, players will put in a massive effort to win the league, and it really is becoming more more difficult. A because of competition, but also because of the the level of preparation and kind of you know players don't turn up for training anymore and just do a five aside and then go home you know they they it's almost like being at university they sit and they study passing patterns they they really it's a you know very intense process um and then if they're not happy with the manager i mean look at the, what chelsea did after 14 15 it, it it just didn't you know they went up for it and we've seen that quite a few times this decade where teams have put in a massive effort to win the league and then just you know not followed up Okay, so the book's called Outside the Box. Uh, it is on, what's that called? Century Publishing. Uh, and it can be gotten all the obvious places. It can, yeah. You happy with how it's sell? Yeah, it's doing well. It's, um, I think, as you, it's got chapters not only on the Premier League, but it goes back to the, you know, the World history of football, the World Cup as well. So I think, you know, the, the, and I think the kind of key thing is it is around numbers, but I'm not a statistical person I'm not from that background so I'm you know a historian so I'm kind of trying to reframe the history of football or, or whatever through through numbers I think you can pull out some some interesting trends doing that excellent uh, so get yourself a copy of the book that's outside the box by Duncan Alexander great to speak to Duncan Alexander uh, the book's really really good really worth reading outside the box uh, it's well worth a read so yeah take the opportunity if you can do so listen in front of me right now I've got Sean McGiven uh, John what's John's second name Sean Murphy Murphy yeah, John Murphy check. Uh, excellent. We haven't written it down anyway, mate. And Johnny Milburn, who've all been uh, part of um, Man versus Fat, which we covered back in July. And you know, there's a couple of question marks. There's a question mark around the name, uh, as far as I'm concerned. And there's a question mark around. The last thing you want is Johnny, sort of a, an atmosphere that's all a bit, all a bit banter and all of that sort of stuff. But you've all really enjoyed it. You thought it's really good. It's social. It gets people out the house, which I think is always massive. And it gets people playing some football, and that can be hard to do at a certain point. So tell me what's going well. Uh, yeah, I think you're right, Neil. Originally, I had some reluctance around the name. I liked the concept. Was a reluctance around the name, and, and and I think it's 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 fair to say there's a large group. There's eighty of us now playing on a regular basis. Not only playing in a league format now every Tuesday night, but we also have a Thursday night game which some participate in, and, and a well well attended Sunday afternoon game outside of the league, which is which is much more of, of a social um, social activity. Um, 
I think I think what it's done and what they what what the organisation what Man V Fats have really got onto the fact is that it's an area men's health and men's uh, ability to deal with fitness issues. It's very very well catered for on the female side, and and men often tackle issues like being overweight in isolation and on their own. And I think one of the things that we or certainly I found and what we have a group have, have found is. Two things, supporting each other uh, with good use of things like WhatsApp and the forum and, and getting together two or three times a week has been really, really helpful. I think the second bit is accountability. So we, Sean and I are in the same team and we get weighed every Tuesday night and for every, every time we lose weight, every week we lose weight, we get a goal. To, which contributes towards the game. So, great example this week. We got absolutely made a show of. We got beat seven one by by the purple team this week. But by virtue of the fact that all ten of our team lost weight this week, and by virtue of the fact some of those, I think three of those lads achieved their five percent weight loss goal since it started, we actually won the match. Something like twenty one. 2112 it worked out. Now, you might say, well, that's that's ruining the spectacle of sport, but 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 what, what we are... Well, everyone knows what they're signing up for. Yeah, 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 yeah. exactly. Yeah. And what it, what it does is the, the performance on the night becomes not secondary because it's still a competitive football match, but we're all at different stages of, of our development and our, our mobility and our health, and some of us can play a full match, some of us a role in substitutions. But, but just losing half of a kilogram is as good as losing... Two stone, it, 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 and from that point of view, we support each other throughout the week. We help each other with with what we're doing. Keep moral support going. I think I think that's uncommon outside yeah. of this this type of organisation. The the, 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 the social uh, aspect shown there is good. that's what's got my attention. And what I mean by social, it's not as straightforward as just simply being outside the house. But the idea that you you get to become part of a collective and you get to sort of you know the moral support of that, as Johnny's saying, I think that that sounds to me like something which which makes what for some people is a little bit difficult. It makes it feel more palatable, more possible. Yeah, because you're not you know some of us haven't played for five ten. 20 years in some cases and everyone's in the same boat you know if you go if, if you're knackered after 10 minutes nobody's laughing at you because because well, <laughs> I could be so like yeah. <laughs> you, you know and everyone's in the same boat you're not turning up and oh there's an 18 year old who's fit as a fiddle and what's the point in even turning up because he's, he's already gone you know and lads who can turn around when you can't <laughs> exactly yeah well, I can turn around just like the Titanic but and it, it's what's good about it as well the games are competitive um, I mean, as Johnny mentioned earlier, we're on the same team, but we'd have each other's throats for <laughs> the, the other week. I actually, I done my ligaments in about, it was about 10 days, uh, a week or so before the first game. So I've just got off crutches. So I've just been standing on the side of the pitch, just screaming. Um, <laughs> and, you know, we, we, we play in green as well. So Johnny's on the far side of the pitch, blending in with the grass. And he's just there shouting at me from the far side. I'm shouting at but. The competitive edge is there, and it's great. But at, as soon as as soon as it's finished, everyone goes back, and you know it's well well done to everyone all around. Uh, to, together, there weren't many well done this week until we got the weight results. Well, when, yeah. when we thought we just been beat seven one, we, we 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 had a moratorium on discussing it for twenty four hours on the WhatsApp group because uh, <laughs> we were, we weren't happy particularly with some of the uh, distribution of our goalkeeper. But we now all moved on. <laughs> We've all grown together. Do you know what I mean? This is it, it is it is hard to to it's hard to get 
to get it's it's hard to get a game of footy together. I know that should it shouldn't be as hard as it is. I think at times, like you know, I think and certainly in a city like this one, and I think in general, you know, we can talk for days about and we will do on the Anfield app, and we do do about grassroots football and about Saturdays and Sunday games, and how it's all become a little bit different, and and that there's there's different factors in play these days, and working hours have changed, and all of that sort of stuff, and it is a bit of a shame. Just the idea of having a game of footy that you can go to that's taken with the right level of seriousness, and by that I mean. Seriously, but not absolutely at each other's throats. Well, yeah, I'd, I'd never played footy before this. Truth be told, outside of like playing in school, the last that the last pair of boots I'd played a game of footy in was size eight Clark, said of all from Brontano. <laughs> but that, but being able to come together in this because I've always gone to the match, listen to the Anfield rap, that kind of thing. Little plug, five pound a month. But um, <laughs> but I'd I'd never played it like uh, with a group of people. So when I signed up for this. I was expecting, you know, you come and you do each week and you're part of a team and that. But honestly, the collective of all 80 lads, because there's 80 lads in the league, we've set up the Sunday game and the Thursday game and now I'm playing three nights a week and I'm coming on leaps and bounds. Like, never played a game before, but suddenly I'm doing all right. I'd, I'd like to say anyway, Sean, might have something different to say about it. Like, I think it's, it's a really important... I want to sort of Sean didn't roll his eyes. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a really important point that the Tuesday night game... It, because actually when you boil it down it's a 30 minute game it's not massive it's an intense 30 minutes because because of what it is the nature of competition but what it's done is it's inspired 80 lads who were previously living potentially very sedentary lifestyles to watch what they're eating and find other ways to do, to be active so there are lads who are playing three times a week there are some people who can't play three times a week but they're they're doing walking of a weekend they're taking up swimming they're joining gyms and and what we're seeing collectively Sean showed me a league the, the other day our team 10 blokes one of whom hasn't kicked the ball yet because he's done his ligaments we've lost 65 kilograms in four weeks as a group in four weeks in four yeah. weeks so uh, so that's if you can, if you can if you multiply that out the, the health benefits for all of us be, is is absolutely incredible now uh, some of us had started on a journey of losing weight maybe before this started but it, at that point about accountability supporting one another and, and having a goal to if we, we joke Monday and Tuesday we're all like uh, on a on a proper we've got over the weekend and we're all trying to be nil by mouth until the way we, we get weighed in let's say half seven on a Tuesday night and like stop drinking water from two o'clock have as many t- trips to the bathroom as you can possibly make you should have seen me before the game last Tuesday I was in the, in the back shed with a punching bag with a bin bag over the top of me trying to sweat out every everything that I can and not touching waters because I just don't want the weight coming back on. Sean, it's, I mean, it's, it, the main thing I'd, start, I'd say as Johnny's phone rings is that you're all having... is that you're also that you're having good fun and I think that, that yeah. you, everyone's having a laugh and I think that that's the... That is the hardest part of all of this is is making this fun and also just finding new ways to to enjoy yourself and that is you know it's as as basic as that can sound it's a challenge it's a challenge these days to sort of do that and yet you're all managing it through through this sort of collective activity yeah absolutely and also you've got a um, which worth mentioning the sort of the you have hidden, a coach the don't you we've got an FA qualified coach yeah Stu, uh, Stu Carrington who's great um, we have a referee as well who's quite interested. <laughs> <laughs> That's not all referees. It's not Howard Webb. Come on. That's the that's the green team. If you're listening, the yellow team loves you. Referee <laughs> loves the decisions that you make. <laughs> go on, go on. Um, but from you know, there's there's fellas who've got different different temperaments, different backgrounds, different issues, whatever, mental health issues, and everybody is supporting them. And even from 
Uh, I mean, I've been quite open throughout my life that I've suffered from depression and I'm, you know, I'm, the last few years I've been quite open for it. And there's little hints where you can, you know, I can see that someone's suffering yeah. that. Right, well, you know, and then every, everyone's just helping. And it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily have to be out there so everybody knows what the issue is. But... We're all we're all joining in together and collectively as a group we've lost three hundred just over three hundred and two kilos in the first month, yeah. which is just shy of fifty stone between 50, between eighty lads. It's, uh, it's it's it all sounds terrific, but also it's important not to get not to get too carried away with just with just the numbers of it. It's also about the principle of it as well that you get to get out and you get to do the thing that it is that you're doing. And in general, Johnny, it sounds to me as though my one of my worries with things like this is always they become become a bit sort of uh, the phrase isn't great, but a bit toxic masculinity and all of that. Whereas this doesn't sound like that at all. It sounds like insofar as it can, it sounds like mostly good, clean fun, despite this ref. <laughs> no, I, I, I think that's true, and I think I think one of the things that that um, our group have tried to stress to the organisers, man, man versus fat football, that that Liverpool as a city is quite unique, and the culture. I think the culture of our league is potentially different from the, what they're used to in dealing with other leagues, and I think the um, I think the bants culture that might operate in the rest of the UK. It, Liverpool's got its own version of Bants and we certainly don't call it Bants uh, <laughs> and, 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 and I think they've had a healthy dose of reality around around how to engage with people from this city and we're quite proud of that we've we've not been unreasonable but we've but we've certainly tried to help them get the best out of us and and, and, and vice versa well thank you very much for all coming in uh, thanks a lot to Sean Jono and to uh, Johnny and to Cy Hughes earlier on chatting about his book uh, On the Brink uh, to Mark Platt talking about the Red Journey the oral history of Liverpool football club and to Duncan Alexander outside the box it's been a fantastic city talk I love these ones you know just just between me and you listeners I love these ones um, go and have a fantastic weekend whatever it is that you're doing you don't have to think about the Reds that doesn't mean to say that you shouldn't but maybe just not quite as much Sports Social Podcast Network